Tonight's reading is from Genesis chapter 18, starting at verse 16, to Genesis chapter 19, finishing at verse 20. And that's When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before him. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, that I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five people there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, What if only forty are found there? He said, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there? He said, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 26. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that he did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. 
Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zohar. By the time Lot reached Zohar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw a dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. This is God's word. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? You wouldn't say that's dull. Let's um, pray as we look at this together. Our Father, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you that it is, it's living and active. It's always contemporary and relevant. It encourages and it warns us. And Father, this is a surprising word to us that you speak tonight. So we pray we'd understand it rightly. We would pray above all that you'd give us hearts that would respond rightly because you'll need to be at work in us to accept the teaching that is here, we pray. And we ask that in doing so we'd understand you rightly. 
we would rejoice that we have a God such as you and we would live to the praise of your name. Amen. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, I wanted to, where do you start with something like that? You've got Abraham, he's haggling with God, as if God's a second-hand car salesman. Go on, give me a bit more, a bit more, a bit more. You've got an attempted gang rape, that's unpleasant. And then you've got um, fire and brimstone, and the Lord destroys the city. So that's super for a Sunday evening. What do you do? Well, at the moment we're working our way through Genesis 12 to 22, just a couple more weeks after this one, and we've seen a number of the narratives are colourful. It's not dull when you're looking at this part of the Bible. Uh, Primarily, we said, the New Testament presents Abraham as a man of faith, an example. It's a faltering faith. We've seen you see ebbs and flows, but there's much we can learn from that. I'd suggest that this evening when we see Abraham in action, he's primarily presented to us as a picture of Jesus Christ, as one who pleads for people that God might have mercy upon them. So look, there's a whole number of things coming up in a text such as this. But if nothing else, we need to learn that God will just, sorry, God will judge with justice, which is a good thing. And we need one like Abraham who will plead with God for us. And that is a picture of Jesus Christ. So kind of where we're going. But um, a couple of points on the sheet and let's work through it. First thing we can look at this, first thing to say is that Abraham pleads for the unrighteous. That's where we're working to. Now, if you were here last week, we got up to the, the first half of uh, chapter 18. Chapter 18, the first half, um, as is normal, God comes and has a meal with Abraham. Uh, God knocks on his door, his tent flap. Uh, God arrives with uh, two angels. They're described as men, but it's clear from um, the early in the chapter, it's God and two angels with him. And they sit down, they have a meal, tell Sarah she's going to have a baby. She laughs, that was all last week. Um, but we pick it up here, chapter 18, verse 16, and the men get up to leave. And so Abraham, being a polite host, wanders along with them. Now, in this whole narrative, a couple of things I really want you to notice before we look at actually the Abraham, or when we're looking at Abraham's pleading here. The first is the reason that he pleads. Then we'll look at the content. But the reason that he pleads here is that the Lord invites his pleading. God wants Abraham to pray or intercede or plead with him. He draws that out of him. So let's just look down. Um, uh, So they're wandering along, they're about to leave. Verse 17, then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now if you say that out loud, you're expecting a response. If you say to a seven-year-old child, Shall I tell you what's going to happen at your birthday party? That is not a sentence that's greeted with indifference. Shall I tell you what's going to happen? Nah, don't worry about it. If you say, shall I tell you what's about to happen? It draws a response. You you can't help but say, yeah, tell me. And if you ask the question, shall I tell you what's about to happen? You've already made up your mind that you're going to do so, unless you're a fool. Um, God's not a fool. He's... Shall I tell, Abraham, shall I tell you what's going to happen next? Oh, go on. (laughs) Of course, that's instinctively what, what, how you respond to such a thing. So God goes on to tell him. Verse 18, Abraham will surely become a great, powerful nation. All nations on earth will be blessed through him. Now, here's the, here's the crux of it. Verse 20. 
the Lord said, the outcry, we'll come back to the outcry, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if not, I'll know. So there's the plan. God has heard, people are crying out and God has heard them. We're being abused by Sodom and Gomorrah. God, do something about it, please. The Lord says, I've heard this and I'm going to judge this, these cities. I'll go down first of all and visit them just to make sure. I'll come back to that as well. But So that's the plan that's revealed to Abraham. And at this point, verse 22, the men, that's the two angels, they turn away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remains standing before the Lord. So, God sends the angels on their way. God has told Abraham, I'm about to judge these two cities. You and me, Abraham. What are you going to do? I'd like to envisage it as a slightly awkward silence. God has told him, I'm about to wipe out all these people. What do you say? I mean, it's a slightly awkward dinner party moment, isn't it? Someone's really put something on the table there that's a bit... Abraham, what are you going to do? The Lord, you see, is inviting him encouraging him to pray. So what happens? Well, he does. Verse 23, then Abraham approached him. Now that's a slightly redundant phrase, I think. End of verse 22, Abraham is standing before the Lord, then Abraham approached him. I mean, that is, I mean, if you're English, that's a serious invasion of your personal space. Someone is standing before you and then they approach you. That is... That's a bit intense. But I think that, that I think there's the sense of Abraham approached him. Abraham approached him to plead. You know, in the court of law, the uh, the barrister will approach the bench where the judge is. He doesn't do it just to sort of and then wander back. He approaches the bench to plead, to say, My Lord, can we have a, a recess or whatever you want to say? You know, the there's an intentionality about it. So here when we're told that Abraham approaches the Lord, he's approaching to plead before him. So you see, this intercession, this pleading that Abraham's about to make, the Lord has drawn it out of him. Reminds me very much. Um, Martin Luther wrote a very famous letter to his barber, as you do. Uh, his barber asked him in the 16th century, Martin, how do I pray? And this is, this is a lovely letter he writes back. My barber just asks me for money. But anyway, the, um, uh, and you may well say it's not worth it, would it? But, um, uh, Martin, Martin, look, the famous sentence from it. He said to his barber, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. It's absolutely true. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. Abraham is not arm-wrestling God here to do something he's not wanting to do. The Lord is saying, okay, I'm going to destroy these cities. Abraham, what are you going to do about that? Pray to me. Go on. Pray to me. Intercede with me. See what happens. The Lord draws this prayer or this pleading out of Abraham. That's the reason he actually prays. And the other thing, the content then. What is the content of Abraham's prayer? Well, in essence, I think he's praying for a saviour, or saviours, you might say. But it's I'd never really got this before. But Abraham, when he actually gets to pray, it starts off then in verse 23, he doesn't pray for himself. He doesn't pray for his people. 
He didn't say, oh, look, you know, before you do that, I've got my nephew, Lot. He's a bit of a bozo. He's made some mistakes in life. But, you know, Lot's there with his daughters and wife. He doesn't pray for himself, doesn't pray for his family, doesn't pray for his people. He prays for, well, these wicked pagans. That's very unusual in the Old Testament, that someone would plead for their enemies or the pagans. So the other great prayers of intercession, Moses, uh, um, in uh, Exodus 32 to 34, he pleads with God for the Israelites, that's for his people. Uh, Samuel in 1 Samuel 12 pleads for the Israelites, that's his people. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 14 pleads for the Israelites, that's his people. Here, Abraham's very unusual in the Old Testament, is just those people over there that I don't know very well, and I've had a bit of a run-in, to be honest, with the king of Sodom, if you were here a few weeks ago. He's not a very nice guy, I know him, but not to worry about that. He's praying for those people. The other striking thing about it is, he doesn't pray, God, can you save the righteous people? We'll work through it in a moment, but you see, in essence, his prayer is, will you save everyone if there are some who are good? He doesn't say, look, Lord, if we go down and there are 10% of the people are good, can you save that 10% rather than wipe them out? He says, in effect, Lord, if we go down and there are 10% who are decent people, will you spare everyone? That's surprising. Well, think of it this way. Uh, in London, the police are about to raid some flat of a terrorist cell. They're making a bomb and the, the police have cunningly got a video camera and a microphone in the flat. They know precisely what's going on and there are six men making a bomb. Um, and uh, But there's one woman in the flat and the police can see and hear her and the one woman is different. She's in there pleading. One of the men is her brother. Don't do this. This is a good nation. These are good people. Don't blow them up. I'm begging you, don't put this bomb together. Don't blow these people up. It will be a terrible mistake. Don't do it. No, that's the scenario. The police seal this in their camera, their microphone. They go in. They arrest the six who are making the bomb. But the woman, they let go. They talk to her interview a bit, but they let her go. She's clearly different. But if we push that, what's going on here is that for the sake of the one woman, the police let everyone go. Why would you do that? She may be innocent. They are clearly guilty. Bang them up. Why would you do that? But that is what Abraham is asking the Lord to do. So in the essence, the prayer, verse 24 what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place? Here's the key bit. For the sake of the 50 righteous people in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? Will you save everyone for the sake of the few who are righteous? And the Lord says, verse 26, okay. If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Will you save everyone? Will you have mercy on everyone because of just a few who are righteous, who are decent people? And the Lord says, yeah. Yeah, okay. So verses 23 to 25 really is the grand prayer. 
But then it goes on as, as the reading uh, went. So Abraham, he, he starts getting the hang of things. So um, uh, by the time we get to verse 29, it's, he's getting a bit succinct. So it's gone down in five. Do you that? So if, what about 50? Yeah, okay, fine, says the Lord. Verse 28, what if it's just 45 people? Fine, says the Lord. Verse 29, he's getting punchy now. Abraham's on a roll. What if it's just 40? Okay, says the Lord, for the sake of 40, I'll not do it. Uh, verse 30, he picks up the pace. Okay, I've really got the hang of this. Let, no more going down in gradations of five. Let's push it out there. Let's go down in tens. So um, verse 30, well, you know, what if it's only 30 can be found there? Fine, I'll do it. Verse 31, what if it's only 20 righteous people? Fine, says the Lord, I'll do it. Verse 32, what if only 10 can be found there? Fine, I'll do it, says the Lord. Verse 33, well, it stops. Now, I don't know about you, I read that and think... Abraham, keep going. I mean, you got momentum here. You got the big mo. You're on a roll. God's retreating before you, Abraham. Push on through to victory. What about if there's only one righteous person, Lord? Will you spare the whole city for that? He doesn't even have a go. Gets to ten, says, "Well, you know, I push my luck a bit there." No, he gets to ten and stops. Why does he stop? I have no idea. <laughs> We're not told. He just stops there. And maybe he thinks that is pushing his luck. That the Lord would have mercy on a whole city for the sake of ten people. Maybe that's it. But he could have pushed further. Because, of course, 2,000 odd years later, the Lord did present one righteous man. And for the sake of one righteous man, Jesus Christ, countless millions throughout the whole of history have been spared. Abraham could have kept going. Do you see here, in his pleading, Abraham, he's a little picture for us of Jesus Christ. He pleads with the Lord Come on, what about if there's some righteous people? Can, can they save representatively everyone? He's got the important theological principle here. He just lacks the courage of his convictions to go all the way. And of course the problem would have been back in chapter 19, as we'll read it in a moment, there was no single righteous one. There has only been one throughout history, Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. He's, he's like Abraham, but better. <laughs> well, in least two ways. I mean, 1 Peter 3 puts it, 1 Peter 3.18, but Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. The Lord Jesus doesn't just plead, can you have mercy for my sake? He dies, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He dies to secure mercy for anyone who puts their trust in him. And of course, unlike Abraham, he can live forever, which is an advantage if you want someone to plead on your behalf. So as Hebrews 7.25 puts it, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Do you see, there'll come a day when I will and you will stand before the Lord And he will rightly declare to us, because of how you have lived, 
because the way you've treated me, because the way you've treated other people, you do not deserve a place in heaven. You deserve punishment forever. And we'll have nothing to say to that. But also there is Jesus Christ who will plead, for my sake, this one must go free. For my sake, this one must be with us for eternity. For my sake, because I died, me, the righteous one, for him, her, the unrighteous one. And I live to plead this before you. For my sake, they must go free. See, Abraham pleads for the unrighteous. So does Jesus Christ, forever. There was no one who was righteous enough. So it's a silly thing, who was righteous back then. But Jesus is for you and me. So Abraham's a bit like him. He pleads for the unrighteous. That's what's going on in this haggling. In verse 18, it's not haggling. Abraham has learned something. It's an important principle. The one can represent the many if you put your faith in him. Here's the first thing then. Abraham pleads for the unrighteous. Secondly, second thing to notice is the Lord hears the cry of the oppressed. Really, we then enter verse 19 in this judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, a couple of things to notice here. The Lord judges with knowledge and he judges with kindness. Let's look at these two briefly. He judges with knowledge, he judges with kindness. Now, verse 21 of chapter 18, the Lord says, I'm going to go down and see if they've done as bad as the cries reach, as if the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are as bad as this outcry that's reaching me. It's not that God has myopia. He's not, you know, losing his vision a little bit and needs to go down. He's demonstrating I will judge rightly. And so that's what he does. So chapter 19, verse 1. It's not the Lord, actually. It's his two representatives. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot is very welcoming to them. Lot's sitting at the gateway of the city. He's an important man now, Lot. If you sit in the gateway of the city, you're an elder. You're conducting the affairs of the city. So he's an important player in Sodom. Anyway, Lot's there. He sees them. He says, oh, my lords, come and, you know, come and have a meal. Come wash your feet. No, they say, we'll sleep in the square. That's fine. Lot, mm, you don't want to do that in Sodom. It's not the nicest place in the world. So they don't. They go with him. And uh, they have a meal, etc., etc. Verse 4, the action kicks off. Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom both young and old, surrounded the house. How bad is this place? All the men. All without exception, don't know. But he's saying, it wasn't just the youth of today who are wicked. It wasn't just the middle-aged drunk drivers. It wasn't just the grumpy old men. The whole of the city was like this. They gathered around Lot's house and... Right, these two men in there, bring them out and let's have a big gang rape. Now that is culturally unacceptable in any society. Back then, rape, gang rape, as unacceptable as it is today. That's never the right way. Now, verses 6 to 8, Lot's behaviour here. It's mixed. Verse 6. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. That's brave. Goes out to meet the crowd, shuts the door to protect them. That's a good thing to do. And said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men. They've come under the protection of my roof. What is that? 
Let me suggest that that only makes sense if you've been with us over the last few weeks and looked at Lot's life. So chapter 19 of Genesis, the last time we meet Lot. Here is the culmination of a series of bad mistakes that Lot has made. Do you remember a few weeks ago, chapter 13, Lot chose wealth instead of faithfulness. Fundamental mistake he made in his life. So, um, chapter 13, uh, uh, he goes to, and he pitches his tents near Sodom, because the land is really good there, and he thinks he can become wealthy. And in chapter 13 of Genesis, it's flagged up, this is a bad thing to do, you don't want to do that. It's not a nice place to be. Chapter 13. Chapter 14, he is living in Sodom. He's actually moved into the city now. By the beginning of chapter 19, he's an elder, or, or certainly an esteemed citizen of the city. His life has slid. And even in this chapter, you know, the angels say, Lot, get out, get out. And what's happened? Well, his daughters are engaged, verse 14 of chapter 19, his daughters are engaged to idiots. So um, uh, they, we said, we've got to get out of here. This whole city is about to be destroyed, and they just laugh at him. Verse 26, his wife has become compromised. She can't bear to look, really, at what she doesn't really want to leave Sodom. So she looks back, and, and she receives judgment. Miserable. Now here's the culmination of a whole series of bad decisions Lot made. He chose, do you remember this? In chapter 13, he chose wealth rather than faithfulness. That's never the right thing to do. Choosing to follow the Lord and be obedient is always the right thing. So what we have here in chapter 19 is, he's in a miserable scenario. He may read verse 8 and think, what is that? Well, laws of hospitality at the time were significant. You were meant to protect your guests. But what is that, verse 8? Don't rate those two men. Rate my two daughters instead. What is that? That's when you're in a bad situation because you've made a series of bad decisions and you're in a fix. So Lot's in a no-win there. He's in a no-win scenario because of the pattern of decisions he'd been making for the last few years. That's what's flagged up there. Miserable. Lot, however, is uh, fortunate, that's one way of putting it, I guess, that uh, his two guests aren't just men. They're angels with supernatural powers, which is just quite useful when you're being attacked by a mob. Um, so uh, verses 9 to 11, sort of slapstick comes into play a little bit. I don't know if it lightens the mood, but it slightly does. Uh, verse 9, get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien. He wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. Verse 10, but before, but the men inside reached out, pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old with blindness. They couldn't find the door. That's ridiculous. You're at the door. You're reaching for the door. I can't find the door. Well, walk forward. This is sort of the chaos. This clearly sort of chaos descends upon them at this point. The two men, the two angels, verse 12, they've seen enough. The Lord said, look, before I judge Sodom and Gomorrah, I will go down and see if they're as bad as people are telling me they are. Verses 12, verse 12. We've seen enough. Verse 13. We're going to destroy this place. But we've come and checked out the evidence. It's terrible. We're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great. He sent us to destroy it. So do you notice that the Lord, he judges with knowledge. 
It's Abraham's comment in chapter 18. Will not the judge of the world do right? And sometimes there are people and there are situations and we think, I don't understand how, I don't understand how God allows that. He'll judge rightly. He judges with knowledge, never in ignorance. He sees all perfectly. He assesses every detail precisely. He judges with knowledge. He'll judge your life and mine with absolute knowledge. Everything we've done, everything we've thought. It's with knowledge that he judges. The first little thing here. The second thing, and even more important, he judges as kindness. He judges as kindness. Let me try and persuade you of that. Here, of course, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the sort of thing that um, some would uh, look at the Bible and say, there is the Christian God. He is disgusting. Fire and brimstone, he rains down. What an evil, nasty, despotic little gods that those Christians worship. And some you know, would put it in stronger terms than that. Well, why does the Lord judge Sodom and Gomorrah? That is important. So uh, chapter 18, verse 20. The Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous, I'll go down. It's picture language, of course, but God says, I'm here in heaven and people are suffering so much that their cries hear me. Same again, verse 21. The outcry has reached me. Same again in chapter 19, verse 13. We're going to destroy the place. Why? The outcry to the Lord is so great. Now this word outcry, throughout the Old Testament, it's the outcry of the oppressed. So, uh, for example, Proverbs uh, um, 21.13, whoever shuts his cry to the outcry of the oppressed, he too will cry out and not be answered. So the Lord hears the cry of those without. But what precisely is going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, helpfully we're told elsewhere. For example, Isaiah 1. In Isaiah chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fathers, plead the case of the widow. Because you're not doing that. Your courts are a sham. No one, who, unless they pay the judges, gets any justice in your courts, Sodom and Gomorrah. The people who have nothing in society are brutally treated by you, and I hate it. That's what the Lord says. Uh, um, similarly, in um, uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters the other cities in the area. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So before we rush in to judge what is going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, according to the scriptures, the main issue going on there was their appalling treatment of those who had little in society. Which is interesting. You get this little vignette in chapter 19 of Genesis. The whole city is saying, yeah, we've got some guests. Why not have a gang rape? It's that sort of place. It's miserable. Why does the Lord judge Sodom and Gomorrah? Because people are asking him to. He hears the cry of the oppressed. So be slow. Be slow to pit the Lord's kindness 
against his justice. When, if you've got two groups here in the, in the first, in, in the 4,000 years ago, you've got the rulers, the elites of Sodom, who were horrifically treating, so we're told, the people, the oppressed. Who do you want the Lord to be kind to? And if he's going to be kind to those who are being unfairly treated and oppressed, that will mean justice for the oppressors. His kindness and justice come together at that point. Or in contemporary language, if, if you are uh, a young child in Kabir or Hula in Syria, and you have seen your parents or your siblings have their limbs cut off, you've seen your family killed in front of you, and you cry out, is there not justice? Well, who do you want God to be kind to? Do you want him to be kind to those who have seen their family suffer so much? Or do you want him to be kind and just not care about Bashar al-Assad? Who do you, do you want him to be kind to the victims? If so, his kindness and his justice come together. Do you see that? That his judgment here in Genesis 19 is kindness for those who are oppressed. That is a good thing. Now, for most of us here who have, most of us, not all, but most of us here have lived a comfortable life, we've never known oppression, we've never known injustice, it's quite easy to sit in the West, in London, in Oxford, and say, oh, God of judgment, how awful, how awful. But if you suffer grievous oppression, a God who judges is a wonderful thing. It's precisely what you want. Of course, some would say, no one ever does evil in the name of atheism. No one commits a crime because of a lack of faith. Well, that's not true. People commit crimes because they think there's no God who will ever see what they're doing. Uh, David Belinsky, I read um, some stuff of his recently. He's an agnostic Jew, he describes himself as that, so no great religious axe to grind. He's a a lecturer in the States, uh, mathematics primarily, but also in the field of ethics. And um, he commented this way, about what sort of God you want, or the benefits of having one. He's a Jew, so the example is unsurprising in one sense. Somewhere in Eastern Europe, an SS officer watched languidly his machine gun cradled as an elderly and bearded Hasidic Jew laboriously dug what he knew to be his grave. Standing up straight, he addressed his executioner. God is watching what you're doing, he said. And then he was shot dead. What Hitler did not believe, and what Stalin did not believe, And what Mao did not believe, and what the SS did not believe, and what the Gestapo did not believe, was that God was watching and knew what they were doing. That's the meaning of a secular society. Do you see what he's saying? If you say, I do not believe that there is a God who judges, equally you can do these things. It's your lack of belief that allows horrific crimes I take it, I don't know, that Bashar al-Assad thinks, no one will judge me for what I'm doing. Therefore, I can commit atrocities against my people. If he believed that there was a God who would assess his life, he might behave differently. 
to how he's doing right now. Do you see the justice of God in judgment is kindness. It's a good thing. Praise God that he's like that. Praise God that he would judge as Sodom and Gomorrah. Praise God that the judge of the world always does what is right. Don't pit his mercy or his kindness against his justice. Bring them together. Two final things. Uh, just as we close, to we'll try and wrap it up. Two final things to try and draw out of this. The first is this. Notice, if you will, the priority of mercy over wrath. It struck me in this account. God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, but his priority is always to have mercy. So he can say to Abraham, Abraham, why don't you plead for these people? See what happens. Plead for them. Because I don't like judging. I don't like doing that. In Ezekiel 18, the Lord would say, look, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's what people, Christians throughout the ages have called God's strange work. Because his inclination, his, his leaning is always to have mercy. Mercy always has a priority, if, if I can put it this way, if he can. So he says to Abraham, plead for these people and see what happens. There's a determination to have mercy. In, uh, chapter With Lot, so chapter 19, verse 16, the angels say, hurry, Lot hesitates. You this really amazing picture. The angels get hold of him and say, look, you idiot, will you come with us? And they drag him out. So verse 16, the man grasped his hand, the hands of his wife, of his two daughters, and led them to say, uh, to, excuse me, led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as he brought them out, one of them said, flee, for goodness sake, go. So you escape this judgment. The Lord's priority is always, mercy has a priority over judgment. If I can put it that way, that's always the heart of the Lord, to have mercy. Flee, he says. And that's one of the reasons why these accounts are left here for us. As part of the Lord's mercy. So we read them and think, golly, Golly, we can't live as we want. There will be justice. Preaching on Sodom and Gomorrah. Fifty years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He was a preacher in central London. I am not afraid of being charged, as I frequently am, with trying to frighten you. For I am definitely trying to do so. If the wondrous love of God in Jesus Christ and the hope of glory is not sufficient to attract you, then such is the value I attach to your immortal soul that I will do the utmost to alarm you with the sight of the terrors of hell. Is he what he's saying there? He's saying, I oh, look, become a Christian because Jesus Christ is wonderful. <laughs> Knowing God is fantastic through Jesus Christ. Having the hope of heaven is a marvelous thing to have. Come to Jesus because of that. But if if that doesn't persuade you, oh, listen, can I just remind you once again that there's everyone lives for eternity in one or two places, in heaven or in hell. And flee. Flee. The fact that these accounts are here is a mercy upon us. Now again, I know some people don't like that. God tries to scare people into becoming Christians. Well, for myself, for my, myself, I think it's an extraordinary 
kindness of him. Put it this way. Try and think, imagine it this way. Uh, someone comes along into your life who is a multi-billionaire, who is fantastically godly, who is witty and funny and charming and intelligent and brilliant. You would probably describe them as the catch of the millennium. Now, they come into your life when you're single or imagine that was the case. Um, they come along and you meet them and, you, and they say, will you marry me? And you say, well, all right. I'm not over enamored with you. But the alternative doesn't look so good either. So on balance, all right, I'll run with you. Now, this is a thought experiment, obviously, and um, <laughs> the multi-billionaire would, could quite happily, man or woman, whatever they are, depending on what you are, the, um, uh, could happily turn around to you and say, well, do you know what? I don't need that begrudging acceptance. I could go out and have anyone, really, probably, in my humble opinion, because I'm humble as well. I could... <laughs> I could go out and have any, I could ask any, I could invite anyone to, to marry me. Objectively speaking, if I'm allowed to make it, I'm a good catch. So what? I don't need your begrudging acceptance. I can go elsewhere. The Lord comes to us and says, marry me or come to put your trust in me through Jesus Christ. And if we say, well, not wildly keen, but the alternative doesn't look great. Hell doesn't look so attractive. All right. The Lord says, okay, come on in. He'll take us even on that basis. That is incredibly kind. Now, he'd also say, look, don't stay there. Become a Christian, but then do realize how good it is. Don't just remain a Christian out of begrudging, sort of resentful, all right, well, I best I suppose I ought to. Don't stay there. Realize how good I am. But he will accept us even on that basis. That's incredibly kind. Mercy always has a priority over judgment for the Lord. I'm nervous as I say that, I hope you get the point. He judges perfectly, but his inclination is always to have mercy. He gives us these sort of passages so we can hear very clearly, flee, flee, flee away from judgment. It'll be a horrific thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Priority of mercy over wrath. Last little thing. Learn from Abraham. There is a need to plead for the city. Now look, when you come to a passage such as this, if you think, okay, I'll be like Abraham. I'll bow humbly in sackcloth and ashes and I'll plead boldly before the Lord. Well, you'll probably not do so well at that. He's an extreme example. You'd also have to wait for God to come round for tea at your house, which may take some time. He's presented to us here as a little picture, a shadow of the greater Abraham to come, Jesus Christ. So Jesus prays for you, if you're a Christian. He pleads with the Lord for you. He pleads, look, I've died. You must have mercy upon this people, on this person. He pleads for you. But when you know that, when you have confidence to come before the Lord, confidence that you have access in Jesus Christ, when you know that, then pray for other people. 
plead for them. Plead for them. Look, we're going to have a little um, half past eight tonight. There's one of these evening extras uh, this month. We're going to think about this question. Does God change his mind? If not, why do I pray? So I'm going to unpack this a whole lot more then. But for now, can I just say this? The Lord loves it when we plead for those who don't know him. Do you know that if you're a Christian? The Lord loves it when you come and really plead. One of the things, one of the verses that struck me most personally in thinking through this issue, Ezekiel 22 verse 30, I'm going to turn it up, but let me just give you this. The Lord says, I looked for a man among the people who will build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not destroy it. I found none. It's an extraordinary verse. God says to Ezekiel, I was longing that someone would pray for these people so that I wouldn't judge them. I was the, the longing of my heart, says the Lord. But no one was willing to pray in that sort of way, so I am going to judge these people. It's very striking. The Lord delights to hear the pleading of his people. For this, our city, for London. Now you and I, 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 I think, I hear that, I hear myself saying that, I think I am woefully short. God help us. If you're not a Christian here tonight, you do need to know that one day there'll be a day of judgment and you'll stand before the Lord. And your only hope is, there's a righteous one, Jesus Christ, I put my faith in him. If you're a Christian here tonight, you need to know that one day there'll be a day of judgment. And we need to plead for our friends and our family. Plead with the Lord that they would come to put their faith in Christ too. I looked out, I was longing. I looked out to find one who would plead for these people before me, but there was none. God help us that he could say that of us in London. Let's pray. Let's do so now. Our Father, we thank you that in your mercy you give us passages such as this, that you've recorded them for us, so that we're very clear that one day there will be a day of ultimate judgment. You judged perfectly back then, 4,000 years ago. There is a day coming in the future when you will judge, and your judgment is firm. It's a wonderful thing for those who've been oppressed, and it'll be a day of great celebration. It'll be a terrible thing for those who have resisted you all their lives. We give you thanks that in Jesus Christ there is the righteous one who died for unrighteous ones like all of us here and that he pleads for us still today. Pleads knowing that his blood has paid for us. That's a wonderful truth. And so Father, with full confidence in that if we're Christians, would we therefore plead for those we know and love who don't yet have their faith in Jesus Christ, that they would do so. And Father, for the sake of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, would you have mercy upon them too, we ask. 
In Jesus' name, amen.